So why would we as believers ever want to do a single work, speech, thought, action, that isn't according to the principles of Scripture for the glory of God? Why would we ever want anything else? Well, because we're sinful, that's why. But it should be increasingly different. So righteous living is evangelistic. Righteous living is radical. That is true. Righteousness goes beyond any sort of external obedience. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Now let's talk about the purpose of the sermon, because this has been much debated. And every one of the commentaries you will read will start off with generally a lengthy discussion as to how this sermon has been viewed down throughout the ages, because everybody, it seems, likes this sermon. I would simply say that anyone who likes it that's not a true believer just simply doesn't understand it. And of course, that's the whole point. But everybody seems to like it, and they all want to claim it, from liberation theologists to dispensationalists, classic dispensationalists, you name it. Everybody wants to claim it and kind of mold it to their own purpose. So let's look at some of the possible purposes, ways that this might have been written, or ways that people have taken it down throughout the years as they've read the sermon. Well, possibly, and and many would hold, and this would be, in general, the, the world's cultural opinion, is they would say this sermon has an ethical purpose. Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great man. He was a great uh, reformer. And so he is telling us how we are to change our culture so that all men can live together in peace. And this has been proclaimed throughout the ages. Every time culture gets a hold of the sermon, this is what they say. Look, this is how we live. The most famous proponent of this understanding of the sermon is whom? Mahatma Gandhi. Or was, I should say, not is. And he would say, this is what, this is how we're all to live. And he took the teachings of Jesus. He's a great teacher. Let's follow that. We're all supposed to live like this. There's only one problem. He didn't do it and nobody can do it. He did a miserable job, as we will see, of living according to the sermon. He had to take it, and as all men do, if they hold it as ethical principles, they have to take it and change it so they can do it. They have to change the tenor and tone of the entire sermon into things that they can do. And of course, it robs the sermon of any ultimate meaning when that is done. It's not an ethical sermon. Again, R.T. Friend says, as has often been pointed out, and often discovered in experience, the demands of this discourse do not easily translate into practical day-to-day morality. In fact, they do not at all. The standard set is nothing less than perfection, being like God. Jesus' typical use of extreme black and white categories lays down a challenge which cannot simply be converted into a set of rules and regulations for life in the real world. And if you try to do that, you will fail. And in fact, you will just simply pump up your own self righteousness, which will lead you ever more quickly towards eternal hell. Do not take this sermon as an unbeliever, perhaps even sitting here this morning, I'm going to try to do that. And if I live up to that, then I'll be in the kingdom. 
No, the whole point is you cannot do this. You must be in the kingdom in order to pursue the principles that are laid out here in the sermon. Well, perhaps then it has a dispensational purpose. I want to be careful here because I would consider myself and our church's, the, the, our church's doctrinal statement is generally dispensational. But there are those who have kind of taken the sermon in any more, I guess, a, a stricter dispensational standpoint have said, well, this sermon is for the millennial kingdom. Jesus came to offer the Jews his earthly kingdom. And, and so he, right now he's preaching and telling them, look, if you accept the kingdom, if you, if you take me as king now, then this is how you're going to have to live. The millennial kingdom will come, the changes in the earth will be made, and, and these are the things that you will do to live within that millennial kingdom. Now, since the Jews rejected Jesus and the millennial kingdom was not entered at this time, then this view would hold that the sermon is not for believers today. We're going to have to wait till he comes again. And when he says things like, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's referencing when we're in our glorified state. That's what he means. Now, there's some serious problems with that. I don't have time to undo them all. right? But I'll, just, I'll, let, I'll let John MacArthur speak on this. Some of you go, well, really? I thought he was a dispensationalist. Well, he is. But he's somewhat of a leaky dispensationalist, I guess we could call it that. Maybe even use the word progressive. Um, for John MacArthur, maybe that's an oxymoron. I, I don't know. Anyway. He says this, because of its seemingly impossible demands, many evangelicals maintain that the Sermon on the Mount pertains only to the kingdom age, that is, the millennium. Otherwise, they argue, how could Jesus command us to be perfect, just as our Heavenly Father is perfect? Now, for several reasons, this interpretation cannot be correct. First, the text does not indicate or imply that these teachings are for another age. It just launches into, he's teaching his disciples, this is what you're supposed to do. Additionally, Jesus demanded of them, his demands of them, he, were, he was demanding those of people who were not in the millennium at that time. And he does not make any distinction. When the millennium comes, do this. Third, many of the teachings themselves become meaningless if they're applied to the millennium. Just look through the sermon. You'll see he talks about being persecuted for your faith. That doesn't happen in the millennium. All kinds of things which reference life on earth now, in a fallen world now, not in a millennial age later. Probably most importantly is that every principle taught in the Sermon on the Mount is taught elsewhere in the New Testament in contexts that clearly apply to believers of our present age. So you can't look at the sermon and go, well, that's some over and above standard. I don't know how we're going to do that. You just need to go to the epistles and you will find that all of these principles are laid out again for you. This is how you are to live as part of the kingdom now. We would call it the church age kingdom. Remember when I laid out the seven various natures or aspects of the kingdom? You don't remember, but you can go back and, and we'll, we'll do that again sometime. We are in the church age of the kingdom. Jesus was bringing in that time. He's in the, the, the kingdom or the king in the kingdom stage, the gospel kingdom stage, but he's pointing ahead to what it will be like after he has completed his work. So it doesn't have a, what we might call a classically dispensational purpose to say, this is life in the millennium. No, this is life now. Now, some have said it has more of an evangelistic purpose. They would call this maybe the law and gospel contrast. That is, the sermon is presented as an intensification of the law. It was meant to drive men to the righteousness that is found in Christ. Now, this is probably a little closer to the truth, but probably the biggest problem with that is that some, and some will say as we, some of the commentators will say as we move through when it says, you know, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that Jesus was somehow taking the Old Testament law and making more of it than the Old Testament did. And I think that's just a misunderstanding. Now, the, the Jews misunderstood the Old Testament law and the Pharisees misinterpreted the Old Testament law and externalized it to something that it wasn't. But Jesus never had that problem. And that's never the problem with the law, even in the Old Testament. It doesn't save us. But it is not, is never, ever been simply external. And it was not presented that way in the Old Testament. So it's not that Jesus is now taking the law, making the law harder than it was before, showing us that we can't actually obey. He's simply presenting the law as it has always been. 
And that is part of the purpose or will be really kind of leftovers or, or certainly in the mind of Jesus as he presents this truth. But it is not, it would seem, his intent to simply say, look, here's standards that you can never do. Enter the kingdom and you have some kind of different standard. They're saying, look, these are the standards of the kingdom. Yes, you cannot do them unless you believe in me, as we will see, unless you have a heart that is poor in spirit. But nonetheless, these are not some principles of Old Testament that we don't live. These are principles that we actually live out. And then, and then lastly, for possible purposes, is what might be called the purpose of sanctification. That is, there are those who see this sermon as the presentation of spirit-filled living pre or before the coming of the Spirit to indwell the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the sermon presents the standards for those who have believed in Jesus and are empowered by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. This anticipates then the work of Christ and the Spirit, allows the sermon to function both as a means to point men to salvation by grace through faith in Christ, and also provides guidelines for spirit-filled church kingdom living in the present age. I think that's the closest understanding, and probably a combination of Jesus presenting the, the reality of what it means to live for him, the law in essence, and then presenting the reality of how we live that out, having trusted in him, having a heart that has been changed, those two purposes, I think, really form the nature of the sermon. So I'll call this the actual purpose, or maybe our working purpose. And that is, the purpose of the sermon is to present kingdom living under the new covenant. Right? Jesus is his work. It will, will bring in the new covenant. He will finish this work. But as he begins his ministry now, he is presenting what it will mean, and essentially even what it means while he is on earth to live in the kingdom and to live then under the new covenant. So this being the case, well, R.T. France again says, thus far from being a philosophical discourse on ethics, this is a messianic manifesto setting out the unique demands and revolutionary insights of one who claims an absolute authority over people and whose word as the word of God will determine their destiny. No wonder the crowds were astonished, not only by the teaching, but even more by the teacher. John MacArthur says, here's the manifesto of the new monarch who ushers in a new age with a new message. Now, how are we going to see that in the sermon? And again, we're just getting an overview. We'll see all of these things in further detail, much more detail in the weeks to come. But let's just lay out, because it may yet be in your mind, well, how, is it, how do those things fit together? How can you be talking about the, how we're supposed to live in the kingdom and all? I mean, the, the, the standards that are required here, but also referencing how we get into the kingdom. How does this work? I think the sermon, I believe, as we work through it, you will see that at first it presents, or at least at least references, the necessity of the new birth. It doesn't give up front exactly how to receive the new birth, but it certainly assumes that that is the case. Jesus is speaking to those whose hearts have been changed. That is, so A, underneath your two actual purpose, that is the kingdom living under the new covenant, would be the necessity of the new birth, and that is that entrance into the kingdom requires a new heart. Just drop your eyes down to the text again. The first blessed, the first beatitude says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit for those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very first phrase of the sermon says this, your heart has to be new. There's no one who is poor in spirit, and we will look at this in great detail next week. There's no one who is poor in spirit on their own. That is the, really, that's a reflection of, that's a description of regeneration. The spirit has changed your heart. He's changed you from the proud, arrogant, self-righteous person, rebellious person that you were. He's transformed your heart. 
and you are now poor in spirit, humble in spirit. It's the only way into the kingdom. So the very first beatitude references the nature, the necessity of a changed heart. And I want to remind you of that yet again. As we move through these standards, and we'll start with the beatitudes so we ground ourselves here. Unless your heart is truly changed, that is the spirit of God has changed it through the word of God. That resulted in in, in your understanding and and when you began to see it in repentance and faith. That's when you saw the work of God. You heard the word of God. He did, as we call it, the secret work of regeneration. By the way, come to our in-town mission strip. Regeneration is Monday night. We're talking about great doctrines of salvation. Election is tonight. Show up tonight. Hey, Sunday night service. Come at 7 o'clock. Election is tonight. We'll talk about regeneration, justification, adoption, all the various depravity, all the issues, great doctrines of salvation. That'll be in the evenings. In the morning, by the way, we're going to be talking about apologetics, working from both kind of a presuppositional apologetics, uh, which is assuming that God exists, into even rational apologetics. That is, how do we prove those kinds of things? Come, 9 to 10.30. Want to know how to defend your faith? That's a great thing. Then if you want to know how to evangelize, practical hands on door-to-door evangelism, then we will be teaching that class from 11 to 12.30. Come join us. And then just stay for lunch and come and join us in door-to-door evangelism from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock. It's going to be quite a week. Pick and choose. All of those things, and yet all of it, again, is, is, is designed around the fact and really is, is referencing the fact, much like the sermon, that you've got to have a new heart. None of that's going to mean anything to you unless your heart has been changed. The thrust of the sermon is that the message and work of the king are first and most importantly internal and not external. The spiritual right, and moral rather than the physical and political. Here we find no politics or social reform, none. His concern is for what men are because that determines what men do. That's what the sermon is all about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All of this, the rest of the sermon is meaningless to you unless you are poor in spirit. You have to come next week to determine what that is. Are you? You might be thinking about that. Are you poor in spirit or arrogant of heart? Entrance into the kingdom requires a new heart. Trying to apply Jesus' teaching without receiving him as Lord and Savior is futile. Those, for example, who promote the social gospel, endeavoring to institute Jesus' teachings apart from his saving and regenerating work, prove only that his principles cannot work for those who do not have a transformed nature in God's indwelling power. One cannot behave like Christ until one becomes like Christ. Those who do not love the king cannot live like the king. It's John MacArthur. Next, however, the ethics of the kingdom assume a perfect standard. And that's where we sometimes get confused. You can't enter in unless you have a new heart. But the standard in the kingdom is perfection, and it has never changed. That is always the standard. And as believers even, although we've been clothed with the perfection of Christ, it is our goal to live our lives in perfection. That is to live our lives perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. Could you have a different goal? I ask you this. Unfortunately, many do. And we're like, well, that's an unbelievable standard. Who can have that standard? Well, you first have to be, again, placed into the kingdom of God and granted the righteousness of Christ in order to pursue the standard. But it never changes. We're not sitting here going, well, we're happy that we don't look a lot like Christ. When I put it like that, doesn't that cause you to go, oh, that's right. If I say, we're not happy that we're not totally holy, you think, oh, legalistic, self-righteous preacher. But if I tell you that you sit here and you are not happy that you don't look totally like Christ, then you go, wow, you're right. Well, being holy is looking just like Christ. And there is no other way. The two are exactly the same. Holiness and Christ-likeness find an exact parallel with one another. And the standard is perfection. We are to seek it, even as we have already been 
granted it. The ethics of the kingdom assume a perfect standard. While righteous deeds commanded in the sermon are meant for believers to live, Jesus made it clear that the ultimate standard is not any human achievement of righteousness, but a true spiritual righteousness. The absolute necessity of the new birth is assumed in, in, in words like, in verses like Matthew 5.20, I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 7.13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. This sermon intends to drive the listener to Jesus Christ as man's only hope of meeting God's standards. If man cannot live up to the divine standard, he needs a supernatural power to enable him, and the proper response to the sermon leads to Christ. So first, we see that this sermon presents to us the necessity of the new birth. Also, kind of in broad overview here, it provides for us, it demonstrates to us the nature of true blessedness. That is the nature of what it truly means to be favored by God, which is the only favor that really matters in this world. And I might ask again here, do you really believe that? Are you living for the favor of your parents, living for the favor, favor of your employers, living for the favor of your culture, living for the favor of your leaders? See, that's how the world lives. And their blessedness then, their experience of favor and pleasure, because to be blessed is to be joyfully, joyously content, satisfied, and happy, ultimately. It is to have been given and shown the favor of Almighty God poured out in, in intense measure, in full measure upon your life. That's blessedness. The world seeks it everywhere else than the place that it is actually found. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount says. Jesus turns everything on its head. Everything that the world would attempt to do to be happy, Jesus said, you won't find it there. It's a little bit like the Ecclesiastes of the New Testament. You think you're going to find it here? It's actually found here. You think you're going to be blessed this way? It's, you're actually going to be blessed this way. Everything is changed. Not some kind of social gospel, not changing our political situation or our socioeconomic situation, our national conditions, changing the heart, the expectation of what it means to be blessed. And that's the whole, all of the Beatitudes, but let me just give them to you an overview. To be a part of the kingdom, to be blessed in the kingdom is to be, have humility rather than pride. It is to have an understanding of the, the weightiness of life, a mourning rather than laughter. It is to be gentle rather than forceful. It is to hunger for holiness rather than lust after pleasure. It is to show mercy rather than try to exact revenge. It is purity of heart rather than self-righteousness in action. It is making peace rather than forcing others to have my way. It is persecution rather than ungodly conformity to a cultural standard. It is insults rather than praise. That's the nature of the kingdom. Are you in it? Is that what you desire? Is that what you're pursuing? That's the nature of blessedness. And it does not look like what the world says is blessedness. So the, the, this sermon reveals to us the nature of true blessedness. What does it mean to be truly favored? David Dudley's here this morning and he, he comes after, uh, he works all night and he's got a book that he found in the library, the jail library. And uh, I actually forget the title, something like uh, Jesus the Millionaire or something like that. He's got the book back there if you want to look at it. It's all, what's it called? The Billionaire from Nazareth. Uh, what a great title for Jesus, right? Well, somebody forgot to read the Sermon on the Mount. 
Somebody forgot to read what it really means to be blessed by God. And it's nothing to do with being a billionaire or nothing, and nothing to do with all the homes and cars and, and, and even for us, probably more importantly, nothing to do with all of the, the healthiness and wholeness that we think we deserve in our families. So we homeschool and we do all these other things and in, in our, uh, our societies. All, it doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with truly being right related to the king, rightly related to the king and honoring and pleasing him. Well, lastly for this morning, well, almost lastly, the, uh, in an overview here, this sermon provides the character of righteous living. The character, what does righteous living look like? And again, this is a very broad overview, but I think these represent pretty well the sermon as a whole. So I'll just move through them quickly. Righteous living, says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in the King's Sermon, righteous living is evangelistic. It is not as though that is apart from his purpose. When you live truly for Christ, when your heart has been changed and you are reflecting the nature of Christ in all that you do, then God is glorified, and hear me carefully, only then. We do not enter into the kingdom and say, well, it doesn't matter how we live. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Slap all the bumper stickers you you want on there. The issue is we are to look like the king. And when we look like the king, the king's father is glorified. And that's all the king cared about. That's it is that God would be glorified. And he is not glorified when we, in our works, do not look like him. Think, wow, you're saying that pretty strongly. The sermon says it much more strongly than I do. Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Implication, when they don't see your good works, God is not glorified. And so why would we as believers ever want to do a single work, speech, thought, action that isn't according to the principles of Scripture for the glory of God? Why would we ever want anything else? Well, because we're sinful, that's why. But it should be increasingly different. So righteous living is evangelistic. Righteous living is radical. That is true. Righteousness goes beyond any sort of external obedience. Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that the ancients were told, we shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. I would say that a lot of people were the fiery hell this week and probably sitting in this room. Young children, you call your siblings fools or some similar construction? Probably. You're worthy of the eternal hell. That's what you're deserving. By the way, it's not an intensification of the Old Testament command not to murder. It's all bound up there. Jesus is saying that's what it really means. That's what that has always meant. That's what it means now. It was never different Old or New Testament. To murder is the same. External murder is the same as hating someone in your heart simply to the point of saying you're a fool of angry intent. That's pretty radical intensification. Jesus is going to talk about plucking out eyes and chopping off hands not in a literal sense, but using them as metaphors for radical sanctification. Are you ready for this sermon is what I would ask. And the answer is, if you're an unbeliever, no, you need to repent. If you're a believer, you're ready. And it's time. And you're going to embrace it and love everything that Jesus says. It's going to drive you to a different standard than you were perhaps considering even as you came this morning. Righteous living is radical. There's nothing like it. Third, righteous living is based on love. Yes, there's, there's the law that undergirds the principles, the commands that are the, the reflection of the nature of God, but those commands are all bound up in one command, which is what? Love. Love obeys the law. 
Because living out the principles of the law is the only way to actually love somebody. If you murder them, you don't love them. If you commit adultery with them, you don't love them. If you hate them or lie to them or steal from them or, or want their stuff, you don't love them. The law is ultimately the law of love, but only believers can live it out in that way. True righteousness always flows out of love and not simple obligation. Matthew 5.43 You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In fact, this law of love is so strong that it leads you to a love of your enemies which pours out good to them when they hate you, despise you, and spit upon you. That's what love does. It enables you to live righteously in the midst of the greatest persecution in the face of your deepest enemy. That's love. And that's how we obey. Righteous living is based on love. Righteous living is the opposite of self-righteous living. The exact opposite. Don't read legalistic self-righteousness in anything that I've said or anything in the sermon because it's exactly the opposite. Legalistic self-righteousness will lead you straight to hell. True righteousness is a reflection of the fact that you will be in heaven. Don't mistake them. They can look very similar. They can seem to be the same on the outside, but they are not in any way the same. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. External self-righteousness, if that's the nature of your life, again, condemns you to eternal hell. But even for believers, anything that they do that is not truly done for the glory of Christ and for his pleasure alone is worthless, wasted, burns, no reward. This, this phrase he uses throughout the sermon, you've received a reward in full when those on earth praise you for what you've done, if that's the reason you did it. Self-righteous, a righteous living is the opposite of self-righteous living. Righteous living then reflects a converted heart. Now, the reason that I say that sounds similar to the first ones, but sometimes we say, well, you can't really know if, if, you know, how do you know if someone's a believer? How do you know if there's righteous living? There's no such thing. There's no real standard. We don't know people. Matthew is clear that we know people by their fruits. Matthew 7, 17. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Yes, we must be exhibiting good fruit, but that is the exhibition of the, of the goodness of the nature of Christ that God has put within us. Righteous living is, reflects a converted heart. Righteous living is eternity focused. True righteousness always has the eternal end in view and not the temporal situation, Matthew 6, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Righteous living is always eternity focused. And lastly here, righteous living is grounded in the word of God. It is grounded in the word of God. Matthew 7, 24. As Jesus speaks about how you enter into the kingdom even, this is what he says, that for everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. Well, what was the impact of the sermon? 
And really, I'm going to just bring this back around. What's the impact on you, even as you've heard an overview of the sermon this morning? What's the impact? Oh, too much to do. I just can't get it done. That could be, your, that could be possibly the impact. Oh, I'm overwhelmed by this. It's, it's not possible. That could be a possible impact. Or perhaps it will be, this is amazing. This is, I'm reminded again, perhaps, of, of, of the authority of God's word and the fact that I need to do this. And I've, I've gotten complacent in my spiritual life. I've gotten complacent in my walk. I've equated self-righteousness with righteousness and I've avoided it. I've grievously erred in this way. And it's time for me now to remember the greatness of my Savior, the change that he has brought into my heart, and I want to respond to him. And in Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus heard these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. They were stunned is the idea. Either we forgot this, or we never knew this, or, or we haven't been living this. All of those could be bound up in that. And maybe that's all true for you. And so my prayer is that you would get on your knees today. You are going to be challenged like you have never been before over these next months. You are going to be washed in grace and love and mercy because that's the only way to understand these things. That's what it means to become poor and spirit. You're going to be washed and bathed in those things, but you will be challenged. And so you need to be ready. And you need to go home and say, Lord, where have I been complacent? Where have I been foolish? Where have I forgotten the authority of your word? And perhaps you need to go home tonight. If, As you were hearing these things, rising up within your heart was, no way. Absolutely not. Oh, I want Christ. And I, I want to come here as a word. I like that. And I like church. I will not live according to that standard. That's way too high. Then you need to go home tonight and repent. And believe. Because this is the standard and the sermon of the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we thank you for the sermon that you have provided for us. To let us know how you long for us to live in your kingdom, how you command us to live and the ways in which we can bring you the glory that you so richly deserve. Lord, I do pray that we would become, if we are not poor in spirit, that we might enter into this kingdom and that we might live then in this way that you have commanded us to do. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.